Hello, everybody. Um, well, welcome to WAM for day three, right around the Murray day three, and particularly a big welcome to people who are joining us for the first time this afternoon. Um, I'm Sally Denshire. I'm one of the people on the, on the WAM committee, which is a delightful thing to be. And in case you're wondering where you are, you're at the Inside Publishing panel discussion. Um, I would like to acknowledge that the Library Museum is built on Wiradjuri country and to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, and I'd really like to welcome our panel members. Um, so Coco McGrath, um, Jacqueline Kent, and as I said, I'm really enjoying Beatrice Davis, um, Alyssa Bailey, who I remember meeting last year, and so welcome back, and um, uh, Jane McCready. So, Jane, you're from, um, you're the CEO of Writing New South Wales, so that's, that's an honour. Um, and you'll be um, leading our discussion today, and I would like to acknowledge that Writing New South Wales is the sponsor for uh, this event. So, please welcome Jane, who will introduce us to the panel. Thank you. I'd also like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Um, rather than actually introduce the panel, since you know their names already, I thought we might start by asking each of the panellists to tell us how they began their career and have built a career in, in books and publishing. Um, maybe starting with you, Alyssa? Yeah, sure. Um, I started in publishing over 15 years ago now. Um, I started off in radio <laughs> and that was not a very nice place to work and um, I applied for a job at Random House because I thought they published magazines <laughs> and then I went along and I was like, oh, they publish books. Oh, well, that's all right. I like to read. So I kind of accidentally fell into publishing. So I started off at Random House and I started my career in marketing and I did that for a few years and then I worked into sales and I've kind of, I mean, publishing is a very small industry. Everybody kind of works their way around the different publishers and um, I've worked at a few publishers and in 2012 actually, which was a very kind of um, pivotal year in publishing because it saw the demise of Angus and Robertson and Borders, which um, you may or may not remember. Um, anyway, not because of that, but it was at that time that I decided that I would pack up and go overseas and I found myself in um, New York and I worked in publishing in New York for four and a half years, which was a fantastic experience. For, for Penguin Random House? Yes, I was yep. at Penguin Random House mm. in New York. I was actually at Penguin before Penguin merged with Random House, mm. so they, they have now merged and are the world's largest English-speaking publisher. And I worked there and then I came back and I'm now working at Simon & Schuster. I'm currently the sales and product director, so I'm in charge of our sales team, um, as well as, you know, we distribute books for other smaller publishers, um, and and that's, I guess, where I'm at now in terms of my job. As I said, I manage the sales team, but I work quite closely with our publishing team, 
and um, on strategy and where we want to see our business growing and how we continue to evolve in this ever-changing, you know, but I think also quite exciting industry. And I think now I couldn't work in anything other than mm. books. Um, or magazines. Or magazines, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, publishing is full of, I've found, fantastic people, in particular, incredible women. Um, publishing is, you know, it wouldn't work without women. Um, so I think, you know, something we do need to look at is, you know, kind of at the, the higher levels of publishing, it is very quite male-dominant, but as is everything behind every, you know, as I say, behind every great leader, there's an incredible force of women. So I do really love that aspect as, as well. So, yeah, that's where I'm, where I'm at. Yeah. So, Jackie, you're the writer on the panel. Um, well, I was just going to say that from... Uh, I started off on a magazine <laughs> um, and I always wanted to get in... I sort of... I, I didn't know, actually... What I do. Um, I didn't know how you got into books... I think you will need to hold it up, yeah. Would you like me to just go on to Coco and we'll come back to you when you've got your mic fixed? (laughs) So, Um, Coco, what about you? Well, I started out in bookselling, which I think is a really great avenue into publishing because it gives you a sense of what people are reading and what readers actually want. Uh, But the dream was always to be a book editor, um, a very hard job to get, but I did a lot of unpaid internships, which is unfortunately the way of the industry. Uh, So I did an internship at Griffith Review and then became their editorial assistant. Uh, And I was also working at an independent bookstore in Brisbane. Uh, And then made the move to Melbourne because it seems like you have to kind of choose Melbourne or Sydney, where so many of the publishing houses are based. And uh, worked at the Lifted Brow as an editor there and at Collins Booksellers as marketing and communication, so I kind of got a bit of experience of that side of things. And then I went overseas and did a course at the Columbia Publishing School, uh, which was incredible, Um, and that kind of gave you an intensive about how the publishing industry works. I came back to Melbourne and got the dream job, finally, (laughs) uh, at Affirm Press, so I've been there as an editor for three years now. Can you just um, quickly tell people about Affirm Press as a a publisher? Um, Affirm Press, they haven't been around for too long, only about five years, but we're the fastest growing Australian publisher. Uh, And we publish around 60 to 70 books. uh, And five years ago, you know, that was 20 books maybe. Mm. Um, And we're a very small team, only 12. So we're doing a lot of stuff. We have a lot of momentum. um, And it's a really exciting, small, independent, Melbourne-based publisher and, uh, yeah, some really fantastic books coming out of a firm press. And could you just quickly, in case people don't know about them, tell people about Griffith Review and Lifted Brow as well? Oh, because yes. the journals play a really yeah. important part in the yeah. ecosystem. Yes, so Griffith Review, based out of Brisbane, um, has a really fantastic mix of investigative non-fiction, which doesn't really have... There's not much space for that type of writing, I feel, in literary journals in Australia. And The Lifted Brow, based in Melbourne, does a lot of really exciting uh, experimental work. And so it's really quite important, I think, to the literary landscape to have a really vibrant community of journals. Um, It's quite upsetting with Island Magazine, just Mm. recently announced it didn't get funding. Uh, So please subscribe to some literary magazines, they're really important. Uh, And The Lifted Brow have recently launched a publishing house of their own, which is Brow Books, 
Uh, so it's really exciting to see what's happening there and hopefully that inspires other literary journals to start publishing more experimental and genre-busting work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I suppose my, my um, experience is kind of a combination of Alyssa and Coco because I started, as I started to say before, I started off as a, on, a magaz- on, a, on a TV magazine, actually, as, um, as a junior typist, and then I became a sub-editor because, you know, I could spell... <laughs> and then I went into radio, into ABC Children's Radio. But I always, it was always, I wrote scripts for them, and that was fine. But I always sort of wanted to get into books because, you know, avid reader, usual, usual story like all of us here, I guess. And so um, I went, went to London, and I talked my way into a proofreading job at a firm called Peter Owen. And Peter Owen was one of the great eccentrics. I have many stories about Peter Owen. I will not not deliver them here. But he was basically somebody who was a mad, eccentric English publisher who would hated to spend money. Anyway, so I got used to how publishers work through (laughs) through that. But um, I came back and got a job as an editorial assistant with a company called Reed Publishers, which no longer exists. And then I went to Castles, ditto. And then I became a freelance and started freelance and started writing books. And that was... And honestly, um, I get the feeling from all of us that this... It's something you kind of... We kind of fell into. There was no great career plan, just something that you wanted yeah. to work at and, uh, and be part of. And as um, Alyssa said, you know, it is, it's true. The place would, yeah, publishing would fall apart if it wasn't for women. And um, so anyway, as well as writing books, um, I occasionally do a bit of freelance editing around the place too. So I'm keeping my hand in with that. But honestly, happenstance, really. Yeah. Quite interesting, but it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So, Alyssa, you obviously work for a, an international publishing company. So yeah. It's quite a different picture yeah. from a firm. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I work for, you know, the multinational. I've worked for two multinationals and one independent. So I work for Allen and Unwin as well, which is one of Australia's largest independent publishers. And I guess how I describe it to people is Allen and Unwin and a firm are kind mm. of like the ABC. And then the others are like... 1097 Foxtel type thing, you know. So, so which of those do you currently work for? Uh, well, actually, <laughs> yeah. ironically, the company that owns Simon & Schuster owns Channel 10, so I guess I'm Channel 10 um, in, the, in the way of things. And look, you know, there are pros and cons on, on either side. You know, with the multinationals, you get that just that big churn and also that global perspective. You know, a big kind of thing in publishing is trying to become a global publisher because publishing is so different in terms of, you know, there are territories and there is copyright Mm. and, you know, people buy rights to publish in Australia and New Zealand from, you know, and it's also still so archaic. It's like British Commonwealth, you know, and we're kind of like out the back of the colonies, so to speak. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so I work in in kind of that, that churn of that... However, I guess at Simon and Schuster, we're we're a certain size. We're not we're not the size of PRH. We're not the size of HarperCollins, Hachette. We're kind of middle of the range, and we like that because that enables us to have some kind of 
independent side to what we do and how we publish and how we manage our publishing. Mm. Um, but, you know, we are, you know, we report through to the Americans, as we call them, mm. um, you know, and they're very, how do you deliver a small profit, you know, <laughs> and things like that. And, you know, and, and that, that, that is hard. That mm. does put some constraints on yeah, you. Yeah, that is hard, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I worked for, for Bantam for a while and that was the same, that was the same thing. You had someone coming out and saying, right, who are the best Australian authors? And you'd think, uh, right, and you'd name a few people and they'd say, well, go out and get them. <laughs> yeah. And you think, honey, it doesn't work like that here. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, really, it's just... Because it's such a, a people-oriented business, really. And, and as you said, it's, you're kind of, it's a kind of a tension all the time, isn't it, between, you know, bottom line, get that stuff out and sort of being, um, being with, you know doing the best you can in a human sense with all the people yeah. you work with and the writers you're working with. And a lot of the times, I mean, and it's just, you know, the, the evolution of publishing is, you know, we're forever on the hunt for what is the next bestseller. Yeah. I mean, if I knew, I would write it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, yeah. um, you know, but I have seen over my career, you know, people like Christus Schulkes, who is you know, one of my favourite authors, both in writing mm. and as a person, but he started off not selling very well. Yeah. Leah Moriarty took her eight to ten years before The Husband's Secret, which was her first one, that took off, not in Australia, in America, and she's an Australian writer. So um, I think, you know, one thing that we do at Simon & Schuster, I know you guys do at Affirm and, you know, other publishers do, is, you know, especially with local Australian authors, is we want to build them. Mm. And, you know, I always say, you know, when my boss is like, well, why aren't the sales any better? I'm like, well, Rome wasn't built in a day. You know, we can't just all of a sudden, for example, we've got this really great young new terrific guy who works at the ABC and he's written these pacey thrillers and they're great books but you know there are hundreds of great books out there so how do you decipher which book you're going to read in a bookstore and he's sold quite well you know to a level but you know you what do we compare him to he is like the next Michael Robotham for example mm. but Michael Robotham started publishing 18 years ago and his first book sold 3,000 copies, you know, Mm. and now he is a huge international author that sells tons of copies. So that is definitely... Stephen King tweets about him. And Stephen King, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And Leah Moriarty and, you know, so that is definitely a bit of a balancing act, Mm. you know, inside a lot of houses when you are looking at, you know, the profitability of the business and having to deliver profit and... Do you think that's general, that publishers are prepared to stick with a writer through a couple of books that don't sell... Well, oh, the, what do you think? I don't know. I think it, it tends it tends to depend totally on the kind of on the kind of book I think. Yeah, and I think also, and you could probably you guys could probably yeah. speak more to this than me because I'm the cutthroat salesperson. But <laughs> I, I also think it definitely depends on the relationship between publisher and author. Even if mm. that's good, quite often you get that there can be a lot of hurt I mean with the whole yeah. penguin thing that just happened last year or oh, hang on yeah um, when there was a merger with penguin there was there was a lot of there were a lot of people who'd had really good relationships with their editors and their publishers who because of this merger 
um, felt as if they'd been left hanging. There's no nice way to do this, but the, as if they'd been left sort of hanging. And, and I thought, you like me? And I was selling all right. And, you know, so it's yeah. always horrible when that happens. Yeah. Mm. Coco, what do, you, what do you think? Do you think publishers generally are prepared to stick with a writer through some yeah. poor sales? Well, at a firm, we invest in the writer as, you know, their entire career rather than a one-off book. But I do feel the pressure to make the debut, you know, a bestseller. Mm. And I think the challenge there is that when we go to booksellers and say, uh, this author has their second novel, the first one sold pretty well, um, there are just so many other, like, you know, blockbusters coming out that they don't really see the point of stocking that extra, uh, that second novel. So the challenge I find is actually with the booksellers. Mm. I'm sure you might be able to speak yeah, to the yes. sales. Yeah. Because of cost, yeah. 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 So it's hard. Like, our, you know, Christmas Chocolates, was it The Slap was his fifth novel? So yeah, it, it was. It does take a while to yeah. build And he wrote a book that. called Dead Europe, which won um, at the time a big writing award in the age. I mean, I couldn't even finish it, and I love him, you know, it was mm. with very dense work of literary fiction. Yeah. I mean, it was an incredible piece of work, but, and then, you know, I'll never forget, I was at Random House, and his publisher, Jane Palfreyman, who is a very well-known Australian publisher, um, came to me and said, oh my God, you've got to read this, and I read that first chapter, and I was like, this will break him. You know, as in break him out, yes. <laughs> break him in yeah. half. This, this is his book. This mm. will be the one. And um, you know, yeah. it absolutely was. Charlotte Wood's exactly the same. Michelle yeah. de Pretzer, Kate Grenville, Kate Grenville. Yeah. You know, if you Secret look at, you know, mm. Tim Winton didn't sell what he sells now. What he did, oh, no. you know. So um, his breakthrough was probably Cloud Street, I guess. Yeah, probably. probably. Yeah. So um, mm. I think. Yeah, it is a fine line because there are some, you know, and it does get to a point where you're just like, unfortunately, we have to not continue with that author. Yeah. Um, based on a whole range of range of and his personalities things. too. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you might strike someone who loves what you do madly, and pushes it and pushes it and pushes it, and it sells about I don't know, seventeen copies or something. Yeah. And or else you get someone who. Um, a bookseller who, or, pe- or people who just think, no, it's you. It's that's what I mean about it being a very personal industry. You really, it really yeah. is. Let, let's switch yeah. back to to debut authors. Obviously, there's a perception that it's incredibly hard to get published as a mm. debut author. Is that an accurate perception? Do you two think, Coco? I think and it's harder Lisa? than it was, don't you? I mean, yeah. what do you think? I, I mean, think you have to have something really special. And uh, it kind of depends on what's trending. I think, unfortunately, publishing often wants something that they can say, oh, it's like this. So it has to be, you know... Yeah, um, so-and-so meets X or Y. Exactly. So we're already existing in um, the trends that are selling well. So a debut has to strike that balance of being unique in some way but similar enough to an existing bestseller, so that's quite a, a hard. I know. <laughs> to there's me. so much else out there. I mean, there's mm. streaming. There's you know, there's e-books. There's mm. television. There's everything else. Is I mean, you're part of a media mix now, whereas of course mm. books were much more, you know, solidly. Based. Yeah. yeah, I mean, where I'm at at Simon and Schuster, I've been there. This is my sixth year now. Um, when I started there, we were a very different company. We didn't publish very many what you would call local Australian originated product, which is Australian authors. Um, 
our biggest Australian author was Rhonda Byrne, who wrote The Secret, which some of you may or may not know, and even then it wasn't really a local author. But, um, you know, when my boss came on board, he, you know, we made a, a, a decision as part of our executive and obviously in consultation and collaboration with our US partners that we wanted to grow local publishing. And um, so in five years, we've grown it you know, in terms of kind of gross dollar values, 178%, which is a huge amount of growth in five years. Um, and how? And people quite often say, well, how did you do that? And quite often it was going out there and, and finding people to publish in what we would call the non-traditional ways. So obviously there's the traditional way where you have an agent who, you know, there are literary agents out there who represent, you know, Tim Winton and, and all the rest of it. I mean, I can't really speak for agents because I don't really know, but I feel that they don't pick up a lot of debut fiction. No, they don't. Sometimes yeah. they do, but I know but I don't know what you mean. Yeah, yes. so then yeah. they're coming to you with, you know, big books with high advances. So, you know, we will pay an advance on a book and then quite often, you know, say, for example, if Tim Winton... He's notorious in the industry for he doesn't sign long-term contracts. Mm. He writes a book and then he sells the right to, the rights to that book. So say, for example, he put it out there that he had a new book out, his agent would then be like, great. And every publisher in Australia would be like, mm. you know, but then it comes down to how much are you prepared to pay? So and you get an auction. Yeah, you get an auction. Not always, though, does it with Tim? I mean... I mean, I don't know yeah, about Tim. I'm no. just using him as but kind of a... There's loyalty. A there's sort of a loyalty yeah, thing Yeah, look, there is yeah. a loyalty and mm. people sign three book deals. But I guess what I'm trying to say is you have to pay a lot of money to get mm. some of these books. So um, we have had quite a lot of success with debuts and finding them differently. So, so how, how is that working? So how are you quite often them? our publishers will go to writing courses... Um, that various people might be running and they will be as guest speakers. Um, they'll go to master classes. There's a thing called the Varuna, the Varuna yeah. Writers' Centre, go through writers' centres. Obviously, there are awards that are unpublished manuscripts awards where books will win awards through that. I mean, Jane Harper came through that. Mm. So did Christian yeah, White. Yeah, Christian White. Christian White, yeah. 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 So there are, there are those types of ways or, you know, the other way is just, you know, trying to get your manuscript in in front of in front of a, a publisher an editor or an editorial assistant writers festivals all of those types of things yeah. so I think in this day and age when publishers talk about profitability one of the biggest things is when you have to pay a big advance if that advance doesn't earn out that becomes a write-off yes. and you know you know that's that's the chance you take I guess mm. with some of those times so you know can I ask uh, both of you something that's all been interesting? Um, all the prizes that you can get for unpublished manuscripts and for first books and things, how important do you think they are in getting, getting people published and getting names up and all that stuff? Because, I mean, there seem to be... Every time you look at Publishers Week, there are about three or four a week. Yeah. You I know. think it's strange. Some seem to be more successful than others. So the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards yeah, unpublished... Yeah. Always the book that wins okay. is um, always hot property and seems to do very well. But um, 
I'm not sure if other prizes are as successful. I think the Rochelle Prize that has shut. Well, there are quite a few that like that that publishers yeah. are setting up yeah, to yeah. find new talent. Yeah, yeah. So they're run by the publishers. When yeah. I was at Alan and Um, when they did, I don't know what it's called now, but it was the Vogel. Yeah, it's still oh, the Vogel. Still the Vogel. Oh, it's still the Vogel. Oh, it's the Australian yeah. Yeah, that Vogel. That was the first one, yeah. I think. Yeah, so that was, yeah. you could enter if you had never had a book published. You have to be under 35. Under 35. Under 35, send yes. in a manuscript. And then quite often, because Alan and Umwen then had all of those manuscripts, there would mm. be a winner, but there would be the opportunity for some of the other people, perhaps, who didn't win to get their yeah. published. And mm. Penguin Random House has one now. As well, the Rochelle Prize is Hachette, yeah, so there's, yeah. there's a few that are run by publishers. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. How, at a firm, Coco, how, how do you go about finding new writers? Uh, I'm always, given my background in literary journals, I'm always reading uh, literary journals to see any new writing that comes along. Um, I think literary journals are a great way to hone your craft, and it also is a good testing ground for your. Uh, author-editor relationship. So if I read something amazing in the lifted brow, I know they've had experience being edited. They're probably a good collaborator, so I might get in touch. Also, um, Twitter. Twitter is <laughs> amazing for the mm. writing community. It's a terrible website to be on, uh, and there's always something dramatic going down. But there are amazing writers, and they're always updating people about their writing progress, and also events like this and the Emerging Writers Festival. So just kind of being aware of the kind of new and emerging talent that's out there. Are you saying that unpublished writers have got a book contract because of their Twitter presence? Yes. Yes. Yeah, and um, yeah. I've signed a book uh, through a networking event that was, you know, not related to the publishing industry. I went to a uh, art gallery and someone kind of was a bit tipsy, pitched me their book idea. <laughs> I signed it. It's coming out in October. So uh, <laughs> you can yeah, find publishers nice anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. so what are some yeah. tips for getting a publishing contract via Twitter? I'd like, I'd like to know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm guessing you're not going to be a troll. That would be no. rule number one would be don't be a troll. <laughs> I think, yeah, we were kind of speaking earlier about um, the elevator pitch. So you know, Twitter has the 140-character limit, so if you can express your book in that many characters and you have a good hook, then that's perfect. Okay. What, what, um, what do you think are the things that a writer should and shouldn't do when they're approaching a publisher? And they shouldn't tell them that they're publishing, that they've sent this to seven other publishers. First. <laughs> Well, is that true? Because that used to be oh, true. But is that well, you can send them, but you don't sort of say... I did once have a cover yeah. letter that said, um, you know, my book would be very suitable to Alan and Unwin. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that's helpful. Okay. Read your cover letter yeah. and make sure yeah. it's addressing the right person. Yeah, change the cov cover letter for each yeah. publisher. Yes, that's a good tip. Yes. And I think yeah. overall just avoid gimmicks. Um, yes. We had someone send us a box of donuts once. It's totally unnecessary. Yes, <laughs> that's weird, isn't it? That yeah. sort of, yeah. So you're trying to set up a pro professional relationship, so no gimmicks, no Comic Sans, just keep it... No Comic Sans. <laughs> yes, no. Comic Sans yeah. often gets mentioned when I ask that question <laughs> of publisher. Um, another publisher once said to me, don't put glitter 
Yes, and yeah. Because yes. <laughs> yeah. it gets all over the office. <laughs> what people don't seem to realise is that this is, um, you know, that pitching, I think this is true, uh, pitching, fine, you know, it's, but what you're looking at, if you're an editor or if you're a reader or if you're looking to publish books, what you are looking at solely and wholly are the words on the page and how they work. And that's really, and no, no, no amount of donuts is going to change that if it's a, if it's a bad book, you know. Um, so, really, that's um, you just got to know. You got to know your know your craft a bit, I think. Mm. Yeah. Another publisher said, "Don't pitch to me when I'm in the toilet." Oh God! Oh, that's <laughs> she was that's she was at a good she was, she was at a writers' festival, and somebody followed her into the bathroom and tried to put their manuscript oh under the toilet door. No, really? Oh dear me! Yeah. Um, Alyssa, do you have any do's and don'ts for aspiring writers? Yeah, <laughs> That's a couple of good don'ts. Yeah, yeah right? the toilet. Yeah. Look, I think, yeah, elevator pitch. I mean, you know, I was saying before, you know, when we go into a bookstore or when we're pitching a book, we're usually, we have, you know, however many, 200 books a month to sell. We sell in kind of monthly cycles. We're sitting in front of a bookseller. We have 45 mm. seconds to let them know what the book's about. Yeah. And if it's debut fiction, you know, that's hard. Whereas if you've got a non-fiction book, you know, yeah. say, for example, you know, Jane Caro, who was here the other night, you know, yeah, it's like, easy, it's right? Jane Caro writing about feminine, you know, and everyone's like, oh, yeah, got it, tick. Okay, I know that. So I yeah. think have have that definitely down pat I mean obviously have a great book that really helps and um, I think if you are sending if you are sending something out to you know kind of what I would call unsolicited to contacts or to agents or to publishers or to whatever it is just have an overall synopsis and Mm. just be really sharp and to the point about what the book is about have a great first chapter you have a great first chapter I always say if yeah. you can get me on the first chapter and you can get me to keep reading then you know that's that's a big yeah, because thing. you want to keep reading I mean you really yeah. do it's not sort of oh God. well you do get days like that I suppose but I mean you know if you've got a book someone's given you something you think oh right and you are really approaching it with all the goodwill with all the goodwill in the world because you want it to work um and the fact that it's Difficult and it's disappointing when it doesn't. Yeah. 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 I guess another thing is to be very aware of who you're pitching to. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. if you pitch, you're not going to send the same pitch to Simon and Trista that you might send to a firm. And it's not just a question of getting the company's name right, is it, Coco? No. <laughs> I mean, no, what, else, what else should a writer yeah. do to. Um... Uh, being familiar with the other books that the publisher has been putting out recently. And, um, you know, each publisher is slightly different in their uh, approach and their kind of company-wide philosophy. So at Affirm Press, we like to publish books that influence by delight. Uh, And unlike other small publishing companies of our size, we aren't really restricted to genre uh, or category. So we publish everything from cookbooks to history, memoir, uh, literary fiction, crime profit-for-purpose books. We've even published a book of plays by Sean McAuliffe. So just knowing what the publishing house have been putting out recently and how your book or story might fit into that. Mm-hmm. I guess that's the same Yeah, yeah. for I any mean, publisher. Yeah. You know, say, for example, where I'm at Simon & Schuster, we don't do children's picture books. 
we don't really do a lot of children's publishing. Um, we publish Grug, which is a children's picture mm. book, but that's kind of quite historic for us and it's, it's a long-standing relationship. But we don't have a children's publishing team. So um, we do publish children's books from our international companies and we also distribute for to local independent smaller publishers. But, yeah, so... Say, for example, yeah, don't send a YA or... Mm. I mean, we occasionally look at stuff, but very rarely because we just don't have the expertise in-house mm. to, to do that kind of publishing. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's a bit like a... I mean, not like a job interview, but, you know, I know that whenever I'm interviewing someone, they're like, oh, I've just read this book, which is, you know, a book that's doing really well for us. And you're like, oh, that's really great. Mm. You know, so yeah, know know what they do and I guess get a bit of a vibe about what kind of books they they do publish. Mm. But you will find most publishers now publish Mm. anything and everything, you know, across Mm. things, you know. We... um, And that comes through, you know, what, what is called imprints. So different imprints which is a little thing on the spine you know we publish a lot of mind body spirit books and then we publish a lot of serious non-fiction and a lot of fiction crime literary so you know also in Mm. saying that I mean most publishers will look Mm. at anything and everything let's let's turn to the publishing process Um, Let's imagine, Coco, that you've discovered this fabulous new author Mm -hmm. from reading The Lift of Brow. (laughs) Yeah. And you've approached them and they've said, oh, yes, I've got this idea for a book and you love it. Mm -hmm. What's your next step? Uh, Next step, we would try and meet the author face-to-face or on the phone um, because it's just so important to get a sense of their goals for the story and the manuscript and if... A firm press are the best publishing house to help achieve those goals and I think it's also really important to establish if we can work well together because uh, the editing process is so intense and after that finishes the author has to be around for publicity and marketing so we're going to be working quite closely with you for many many months if not years um, so we really need to get a sense if we can collaborate well um, and then you would offer and you know, if they have an agent, there might be a bit of a bidding war, which is always stressful. Um, but hopefully I would get the book in a hypothetical <laughs> situation. And uh, then we dive straight into uh, the editing. And I guess there's three main stages, structural, copy editing, proofreading. Um, it happens quite quickly at a firm press, unfortunately. We can oh, yeah. sign a book and get it out in a couple of months um, so it can be quite a sped-up process, but ideally, structurally, I would take a couple of months with the author, working really closely. I really like to take a story apart and work out the best scaffolding, and so I like to take my time with that uh, process. Copy editing, we might hand you over to a freelancer to get a fresh perspective, and that's when we get down to the nitty-gritty and work out if sentences are flowing well on the line level. And then proofreading. And uh, well, while this is happening, I've briefed a designer. We've got um, a beautiful cover because anyone who says, don't judge a book by its cover <laughs> is lying. Please <laughs> judge a book by its cover. We put a lot of thought and effort into them. Uh, and yeah, it, it's quite a quick process. And then once it's sent to print, the author's handed over to publicity. But 
myself as an editor would stay with them as their kind of champion or cheerleader throughout the whole process. When you say it's quite a quick process, what do you mean? Uh, it could be six months. Um, <laughs> yes, it's a lot quicker than I thought when I first started in the industry. I don't know if it's changed or if... I think it's got shorter. Yeah, yeah I think it's yeah. definitely got shorter. Yeah. Do you have acquisitions meetings at the firm? So uh, have you had to present your book that you really want to publish? Yeah, we've got such a small team, so it happens just you know in the open plan office. We just turn our swivel chairs around and make the pitch. Uh, but if there's an editor who really believes strongly in a story, then the publisher will back us. And... Um, you know, sometimes there's a bit of a fight and I really have to make my case, but if I've got the passion for it, then that's all I really need. That's not the same everywhere, is it? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and I feel quite so, lucky. Yeah. Can you tell us how an acquisitions yeah, meeting sure. goes at I mean, Simon oh & Schuster? Because you're the evil person. I am. Aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, worst, that's right. The yes, worst you meetings. <laughs> and then there are pre-meetings before the meeting. And, oh, God. I mean, look, it's... It's a fun process sometimes, but sometimes it is also quite a fraught mm. process for a whole range of reasons. So how it works um, at where I am and, look, I've worked at a few places and it's pretty much the same everywhere, is everyone has their acquisition meetings, ironically, on a Tuesday afternoon. And we always used to say it was because everybody watched Australian Story the night before. <laughs> and then we'll go to the meeting and be like, did you see Australian Story last night? Yeah, we booked yeah. it, yes. Oh, we should go get a book from there. <laughs> it's quite funny. But anyway, so we have a publishing meeting usually on a Tuesday afternoon. So what happens is the week before, the, so we, we, the publishers who, who work for us will send out either an expression of interest. So an expression of interest will be usually around non-fiction projects so you know um you know and talk about timelines going quicker I think it's because everything is of the now you know it's not like with social media and you know all these different ways to consume content it's like you've got to get it out quick if you're publishing Mm -hmm. a book on you know I don't know me too movement or, or things like that um so they'll send out an expression of interest or they'll send out a fully formed proposal and so then um, they've done their bit. Um, in terms of what I do is I ask some of the key people in my sales team and our product team to read it, gather their thoughts and think about what we call numbers. Um, and when I say numbers, that is numbers that we think we could sell of that book. And then, um, and then we'll express our opinions on it privately before the meeting and then think about how we're then going to present those ideas to the rest of the meeting because I have been in some meetings where you know people have gotten incredibly upset I mean publishing is very very passionate it's not like banking you know um and um upset because a book hasn't got up well yeah or or because just a flippant comment that someone has made and quite often you know Publishers will work with people for, you know, sometimes six, nine, 12 months before the book comes to acquisition. You know, there are some publishers, we have some at our work who, you know, work with authors, mentor them and get them to the point Mm. where they believe that the manuscript is good. And then you'll have a flippant remark, usually from someone in sales and marketing. It's like, oh, you know, I just found that character really cliche. And then, you know, the publisher 
goes crazy and, you know, it's just not a fun meeting. So, you know, there, there are feelings and emotions and a lot of time invested. So then we, you know, we think about that. We think about what the market is um, and what's in the market and what it's like or, you know, what it's not like or, you know, what we think, all of those types of things. And then we go along to the meeting and the publisher pitches the book and says, I have this. And then we go, okay, well, we think in sales and quite often look I will speak to the publisher beforehand to see if we are close to being on the same page because if we're not I will then raise it before we get into the meeting because in our acquisitions meeting there's probably about 15 people so it's you know I also don't believe in kind of blindsiding the publishers by going in saying no that's really I don't think that's a good idea. It's not something we want to proceed with. Um, so we, we will do talk about that before. And then we go in, you know, and then the conversation starts around how much money will we have to offer? Where has this book come from? You know, all of those types of things. And then the other half of the publishing meeting is a cover meeting. <laughs> so then, you know, if you fast forward to that part, then, you know, we look at the covers and talk about cover changes Mm. then if the book's acquired it goes into what I call that process Mm. and then um, we quite often have meetings um, so we're having a meeting next week about books that we're publishing in April next year so we're betting down our 2020 and it's close to I mean we've still got room for more books but you know we've got lots of books ready to go for 2020 for January to December each month so we'll have a meeting next week about April books where we'll brainstorm them and what do we need to do how do we set these books up how do we get this new local talented author from wherever they might be in front of booksellers how do we build their profile and then the other really big important part is we do things called proofs which are what are called uncorrected proofs Mm. which are um we will give them to booksellers, to the media, you know, because the biggest way and the best way to sell a book is to generate word of mouth. If I could, you know, if someone is like, what's the one thing that sells a book? It's word of mouth. If you look at every single book and, you know, we've all seen lots of them in our career, it's it's word of mouth. So that's why quite often we do those proofs and we say, go and read them. And now people get on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and their blog or their podcast or wherever it might be. And like, there's this great new book coming out, you know. I mean, look at The Testament by, you know, Margaret Atwood. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, obviously it's Margaret Atwood, but, you know, Everyone was talking about that for months. There was so much hype around it and everyone was so excited. So trying to do that for, you know, Tim Aliff is really hard because no one knows who he is. (laughs) So, yeah, so we do that process and then we sell three months ahead. So um, our sales team is out there selling January and February books to booksellers and – So they go into the stores, they have their meetings, they run through all of the books we're publishing, the booksellers then go away, they'll read proofs or whatever and then they'll order and then it will be delivered and published. You mentioned doing the numbers. Obviously it's going to depend on the type of book it is. Yeah. But say for for a a more literary novel, what kind of numbers are we typically looking at? I mean, it really it really depends on the author and how many books they've done and, you know... Well, this is our debut author who, you know... 
I mean... It's a great new literary talent, but yeah, we have an audience yet. Sure. Look, and when we sit in those meetings, we deal with a lot of hypotheticals. Mm. If this happens, this happens, and this happens, then we'll sell this many. And look, you know, mm. all of the time, this, this, and this, and this mm. doesn't happen. So we do talk about, you know, kind of, I guess, more about belief. But say, for example, if it was a really great literary novel and not a novel that's going to sell out a big W, Kmart or Target because they are a very large part of the book-selling market in Australia, we would say it would probably be around... On the day it's published, there would probably be around, I mean, anywhere from 3,000 mm. to 10,000 in the market. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that depends. I think people are often surprised at how small it is. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's true. Yeah. Three to five. We were always told three to five. You know. Yeah, <laughs> three to five. And three then, to five. Three to five. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And then yeah. Yeah. So Jacqueline, we've talked about the publishing process as a writer. On the other mm. side of it, how does it all look to the writer? <laughs> it's hilarious, actually, because <laughs> you start off being the person who, you know, edits and you know knows all that. Slightly different thing when it's your own copy being edited, <laughs> because you I mean you know the job and you know. You know, you know, you know what what's supposed to be happening and everything, but there are times when you think, "Oh, for God's sake, that's a joke! Don't you get that? I mean, really, <laughs> you know." And um, sometimes I've had, I've been very lucky with the editors. I really have been very lucky with the editors I've had because, um, with a couple of rare exceptions, they've been kind of on the same wavelength and keen about keen about the book, but. You do get the odd, strange thing. Um, none of which, of course, come to mind at the moment, which they never do in this sort of... But really, it's, um, it's a much more fraught process than you think it's going to be. You think when you start off, you think, oh, yeah, you know, I know how this works, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you get really worried. The thing that worries you, if you've done more... I've, I think I've done about 15 now, 14 or 15 books... And what really, really makes me feel unsettled is if I've got an editor who says, oh, she's done all these books, she's fine. And that really does promote insecurity because you think, well, not that you you don't think what you've done is fine, but no one's questioning it. And you need an editor. I mean, I always think you do. You need an editor. You need someone to butt up against. You need somebody to sort of say, what evidence have you got for that? I, wouldn't, uh, I don't know about this because... You want someone who will question you. You want someone... It's not always very pleasant. And sometimes you sort of stalk off muttering, as I said. But you really... That's what an editor's sort of supposed to do. And that is, is challenge... I hate the word, but challenge you. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and that's the best kind of editing in, in my experience because um, and, but that, that is, is a problem when you get people who are very successful, very successful publishers. I always think of them as being editor-proof. Um, I wonder how much real editing very, very successful writers actually get. Every writer I know who's been through this process more than, I don't know, three or four times says that they are very grateful for editing, you know, to have an editor. Most of the time it's true. Most of the time they're not sort of carrying on. But sometimes they are. They just say, oh, they changed a comma and that was absolutely fine. Well, no. No, you want someone who's going to engage with you to engage with the book. And it. And as I say, I mean, I had, I've had problems with one editor. We weren't speaking for a while. 
because mm. it's this whole thing you were saying about passion. Yeah. It, come, it comes out very much on that level as well. But what you do need is, and what you do want is someone who's going to push you. Mm. And I have to say, and I, and I really think they're the editors that, that I really like the best. And that's what I try to do as well, mm. for good or ill. <laughs> your, your, your editing process is obviously pretty intensive, Coco. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you're right, it has to be kind of the editor as cheerleader and also as the harshest critic. Yes, absolutely. So, and you've got to trust each other because yeah. if you don't... Um, yeah, I always think that if you don't like each other much, well, hell, you know, we all have to work with people we're not crazy about... If you don't like the book or don't respect the book, it's just not going to work. It really isn't. You've really got to, on some level, engage with the book as it is and be prepared really to engage with that book. And whether you like the author or not, that's kind of immaterial. I mean, it helps if you do. But but really, no, if you don't like the words, you've got a problem. Yeah, and I think you see that with a lot of writers and their publisher. You know, a publisher Mm. will move to another publishing house and the writers then go with them. Yes, that's right. You know, there is definitely... I mean, I... You know, I go back to uh, Christos Solkis. He was at Random House and then he moved to Alan and Unwin. And, you know, you see it within the industry where people do move to where their publishers are or also mm. with their agents, you know. Yeah. Their agents might move to, to different agenting businesses and you'll see authors go with them because the the publisher-editor-author relationship, I feel, is the most important, is the most important yes. part of a book. Um, I agree. I mean, I've never done it. I, oh. I don't have that kind of attention to detail. <laughs> but, it you know, I have yeah, read but, yeah. books that haven't been edited properly. And, oh, yes. And until, and you, you really know, can, can't you? You're like, yeah. oh, wow. Um, so, yeah, that, that process and getting that feedback and, you know, even if you don't have an editor or you are trying to write, just keep refining your writing, get someone very... Mm. Someone close, a confidant, you know, someone who trusts you, who will give you honest feedback yes. on it because that, that is the way that it works internally in terms of yes. the editor and writer and that if you are looking to do something, that is a way you can do, you can replicate it by getting some kind of feedback. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to open it up to questions from you shortly. So have a think about whether there are things you'd like to ask. I would just like to say they, they do have to be questions. Um, <laughs> and please try to make it a question that other people in the room will find interesting. So don't make it too narrowly about what you're writing or doing. Can I just say one, one thing? You know, we're talking about time, time constraints, which we all suffer from. When I was working on Beatrice Davis, I suddenly realised that it is now possible for a book to go all the way from the author's mind to print without going anywhere near paper. It's true. Yeah. Well, that, well, that brings me to what I wanted to talk about quickly before we mm. go to audience questions, which is the changes that have happened in this industry, mm. um, particularly in the last decade, but also because Jacqueline is the author of a biography of Beatrice Davis, who is, I guess, the most iconic Australian editor um, in book publishing. Yeah, she was... And, the, and also where we think, you know, things might be going in the future, because there has been... Weird, isn't it? Weird, look at what... Beatrice Davis was the chief editor at Angus and Robertson's from 1937 to 1973. And I was sort of looking at the revision of it the, the other week and I was thinking, it's absolutely 
a different it's a different universe. Mm. I so mean, what did it what did it look like in, in Beatrice's Oh in, in Beatrice's day Angus and Robertson, first of all, they had the game by the throat, right? They were the major local publishers. They had their problems, but the point was that if they, for a long time, probably until, well, probably the mid-60s, they, they were the main publisher in Australia, and if you wanted a book published in Australia, you would go to Angus and Robertson. Now, this is not awfully good for the sake of Angus and Robertson, because what that meant was that they could more or less run the game the way they wanted to, with the results that you'd get books that um, might have been edited, half-edited, and they could take two or three years to appear. Editors at that stage were only people who were the courtly servants of the author. They had no um, input into such mundane and grubby, vulgar things as budgets could God help us, you know, um, and nothing like that. An editor was supposed to just sit there and be purely an editor. That did change at the end of Beatrice's tenure a, a bit. Thank goodness it did. Um, but yes, there was that. There was. It was a very much more leisurely process. The author was hardly consulted at all in in many cases. Thank you for giving us. We really like your book. Thank you. Yes, now, now you know, it'll be fine. Um, and then there were cases with A&R when people came out and walked into the bookshop in Castle Ray Street in Sydney and saw their book on sale and they hadn't known that it, you know, it had just disappeared into the ether and they had no idea what had happened to it. You wouldn't get away with that now. Um, but I remember when Richard Walsh took over Angus and Robertson's in 1973, he became the editor, there was such outrage, such outrage. How dare this whippersnapper of a person take over this wonderful and cherished institution and try and change it? Um, and that, when I started in publishing, which was... When was that? Oh, God, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> in the early, uh, late 70s, early, early 80s, there was, still, there was still sort of sulphur floating around. There were still people who were very angry about what had been done to Angus and Robertson's. But you know what? I've, when I was looking at the book again fairly recently and I thought, had to happen. Mm. And it's a damn good thing that it did because it meant that everybody... I think it's better now than... I really do think it's better now than it used to be. It's no longer... It never was a particularly gentlemanly profession um, <clears throat> in the sense that um, it was, was sort of courtly and all the rest of it, but, um, but it never was... It, yeah, it was a funny... It was a funny profession, in a way, publishing then, because um, if you had one publisher who knew everything, this is really, really bad for the industry because you're not getting a plurality of voices. Mm. And that's what happened with A&R. Now, not only... It's sort of gone a bit too much of a good thing now, I think, because you've got not only a lot more publishers and a lot of smaller publishers coming up and doing really well, but you've got podcasts, you've got all, all the other things in the media mix. So books are finding it trickier now. But I do think that it's... Um, you know, times are not frightfully rosy at present for publishing, but I think that, I think, by and large, I think the writing is actually better. Do you agree, Kate? Do you think, you know, just, uh, you know, people are taking more care about their words or it's easier because you can change them every, you know, 30 yeah. seconds if you want. It does yeah. worry me that um, 
editing is such a quick process. It worries me too. I wish there was too. a bit more time for that. Yeah. And um, like as you were saying, the role of an editor has changed and now an editor has to wear so many different hats, whether that's, mm. um, uh, you know, a bit of a cover designer and yeah. things like that. So I wish editors Lube could artists, just be yeah. editors. So it's quite surprising how little editing and reading I do in my job. So that's yeah, what, that's what, 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 are you t- what are you yeah. tied up with? Yeah. when you Tied up with writing blurbs and kind of, yeah. you know, marketing copy. Uh, a lot of management just comes down to project management, really. Um, and reading has to be done in my spare time and weekends. Yeah, so that's true. It's too. surprising. That really surprised me when I started. I just thought, okay, I'll sit down, I'll get my red pen out, and I'll print some hard copy pages. It's not the case, unfortunately. No, mm. no. Mm. How, how, how did? Tell us about Beatrice. Who was she, and how did she work? Oh, all oh, right, Beatrice, Beatrice Davis. She was born in. Um, Bendigo, and she started out her career. Uh, she was a, she's one of these small, beady, fierce people, right? You know, we've all met them at school, probably. You know, the, the, uh, the maths teacher, whatever. But she was she started off as um, an editor on the um, Medical Journal of Australia, as a proofreader and edited that, and that taught her quite a lot about. Um, detail and so forth and then she wanted to get into publishing um, to be she wanted to work in publishing and the guy who was employed her started employing her as a proofreader see she kind of got in the way we all did you just you know here and it, it wasn't a career thing at so this all this is in the 1930s yep yeah 1936 37 and so they didn't have an editorial department at all she was it so she ran her own race, really, and she and they eventually employed three or four editors. She was never on the board. She was never part of acquisitions. She never acquired books. That was up to the men. She didn't particularly want to do that. She didn't, as I say, have anything to do with anything sordid like budgets. And she was... Because she was the first and because she was... A very, very detailed, and she had a very sharp mind, very sharp brain, and she was, and she was there for so long. Um, she became, she was kind of the the doyen for a long time. The point about it too is that editors now tend to be known as the person who edited X book. You know, so and so was the editor of such and such, and was absolutely wonderful and fantastic. Beatrice didn't get her reputation because of that, because her thing was editors um, are invisible menders. Well, you could say they are too, yeah. Invisible menders, you know, you don't see them. They're only noticed when... It's like invisible mending because women do it. It's badly paid and it's only noticed when it's done badly. So, (laughs) so yes, in a way, you can be so invisible mender. But, you know, she was very much no-no. She wouldn't even have a name on a book as an editor. Mm. Where she got her influence from, really, was because she was a tastemaker and she was on panels. Miles Franklin Award, every, just about every literary mm. award that was going at the time from that period. But it would have been all the books she'd worked on. That she would, it would have been all the books she'd worked on that she would have been... Well, some of them were, yeah. In the, <laughs> you know, just about. Well, they were, actually, yeah. yeah. Thea Astley did rather well. Actually. <laughs> she got four. She got four Miles Franklins. Yeah. And Beatrice was her editor for all four of them. Okay, but, that's um, corrupt. But it got... Yeah. <laughs> nice if you can get... Um, but uh, she had her own taste. She did not like Patrick White. 
who reciprocated, I might tell you. Didn't like her either. Um, but um, and she, had, she didn't like all these... She didn't like Helen Garner because she thought it was all too much ghastly, you know, a darling and like ghastly stuff about women and, you know, physical things and menstruation and, oh, you know, all that. But she was very much out of, out of step, as it happens, as it'll happen to us all, with um, the new the new things that were coming up. So she had a very, very strong influence when, when she did, but for a very long time. Yeah. But she was really more of a tastemaker than an editorial advisor because like anyone who's done any editing ever, um, consistent, you, know, you, you can be a bit inconsistent on stuff. You know? So, yeah. So, yes, that's, so that's who she was. And um, yeah. she died in 1992. Right. And she was a very fierce person. Does any of that resonate with you as a 21st century editor? <laughs> no, it's not exactly, is it? No. I mean, she would have been receiving manuscripts by post and sending yeah. the edits back by post. And yeah. Was that the time of the three martini lunches? Or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, sad to have missed Do you have those? Martini, actually. I no. think it was the actually. No three martini lunches. Coffee every now and then. Oh, Friday <laughs> afternoons, yeah, right, all that stuff. Alyssa, you've been working in publishing for about 15 years, yeah. Um, what changes have you seen over that time? I mean, obviously, the biggest change I've seen is the introduction of e-books. Um, you know, it, God, I can't even yeah. remember now when it happened, but I remember there was a lot of. I mean, it was probably around 2012, 2011 that it kind of really hit, and that was when I was working in the United States, which was a lot far ahead mm. of the e-book kind of world. And I mean, it took off. Everyone was like buying e-readers and yeah. downloading books and, you know, we'd see these incredible e-book sales and everyone was like, it's going to be the death of the physical book. And I remember for, for quite a few years, everyone was petrified yeah. that no one would buy physical books anymore. But then... People still continue to buy physical books. They still continue to buy books today. Um, Why I think, do you think? What do you think's happened? Uh, look, I think, I think now, you know, we hear all this stuff, screen time is bad. So why is people oh, going to yeah. pick up a screen? Well, e-books have plateaued, haven't they? They've, yeah, they've levelled out. Yeah. plateaued. They're yeah. a part of our business. I mean, look, to be honest with you, they're an incredibly profitable part of our business. We don't have to send it to a printer. We don't have to buy paper. We don't have to put it through a warehouse. We don't have to put it on a truck to be delivered to a store in a box. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's, it's at a level and, you know, what books sell in e-books? Well, books that people can't get in print anymore, you know. Yeah. Books, bookstores have decreased. So if someone goes into a local bookstore and can't find it and they have an e-reader or a phone or whatever, they'll go buy it from And some there. of the genres like romance. Yeah, romance is huge. Yeah. You know, yeah. those big, you know, James Patterson, those big kind of blockbuster thrillers. A lot of people who consume a lot of books mm. will, you know, and... I remember my neighbour was like, well, I don't have a bookshelf to fit them. I live in a tiny apartment. And yeah, I was like, that's oh, true. yeah, look, I, I get that. Um, children's books have, obviously has not been affected mm. by, um, by e-books. Obviously, parents want kids to actually read a physical book and not be on, on a tablet. Mm. Um, so that's been the biggest, the biggest change I have seen. Um, and now I, f I find in terms of us and sales, e-books is at a steady rate. Um, it's nowhere near 50% of the market. It's, it's probably about 
20% of the market. And, um, yeah, it's kind of found its sweet spot and it's there and it coexists within publishing. You know, publishing has changed. I mean, you don't see a lot of those big, expensive, beautiful, you know, cookery books or, you know, the big photography books. There are a lot less of those. I mean... It, you know that used to be there used to be a lot more of those types of books but they're incredibly expensive to print and you know you can't get lots out mm-hmm. um the biggest thing now at the moment that i am seeing a huge change in is audiobooks mm. so that yeah. is you know that is on the right i mean traditionally you know we never talked about audiobooks we didn't buy audio rights you know but in the last 12 months every single medic audiobook rights and my boss is obsessed with it let's get into production let's get a reader on it you know and uh non-fiction business motivation spiritual is huge in audiobooks i mean we published Mm. michael mosley and we got him to read the fast 800 and it just went crazy oh he's terrific yeah i mean he's great that's you know but um you know we publish um Stephen Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits for Highly Effective People. I mean, it's huge on audio. So audio is a really big area of growth, mainly in non-fiction. I think fiction is a bit harder and taking Mm. time to get to it. But why do I think that's happening? Podcasts. You know, I think people are now sitting in their cars more. They've got, you know... I mean, people listen to it when they're walking or they're, you know, it's just kind of the evolution of such. Mm. But um, it's still a great part of the whole life of a story. There are many different ways to publish a story. Mm. What do you think the next 10 years might hold? More change? Oh, God, I mean, I don't know. I never would have (laughs) predicted five years ago that audiobooks would Mm. be, you know, the big buzz and everyone's like, get it into audiobooks. I don't know. I think I think what will always remain constant is people will always buy good stories, whether they be true yeah. stories or not true stories. People will always buy children's picture books. You know, literacy is such a big thing. Um, you know, there is no better way to expand a child's mind than taking them into, you know, I mean, Alison Lester was here yesterday, you know, there is no better way to engage children. So I think, you know, what we continually talk about and something that I think we need to do as publishing as an industry is promote reading. Mm. Instead of promoting, go and sit on your couch and binge watch a season on Netflix or, you know, promote reading, promote people, you know, supporting local stories, local authors, and, and important stories. We're publishing at the end of the year um, Archie Roach's autobiography, which I believe is an incredibly important story that needs to be told. Mm, and, you know, one. that's yeah. something that, that we feel strongly about and I think people will continue to feel strongly about. Can I just say too, I think similarly uh, talking about getting people... I'd like to sort of look at the other end, at the other end of it, if you like, and I think that everybody on the planet ought to write in some way a memoir. I really do believe that because I think that <laughs> I don't mean no, 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 no for the family, yeah, for yeah. everybody. Just I know what you mean. No, I mean oh god, but uh, no, but it really is important to for people to understand their own history and their own lives. And yeah. I think it doesn't matter what you do with it or how you do it, but I think that really it's important for. Before before we go to questions, do either of you have a prediction for the next 10 years? Uh, 
It's so hard to say when it changes so quickly, but I would hope that as an industry we could uh, make some steps towards more diversity in what we publish, yeah. the yes. voices that we give a platform to, as well as hiring practices and funding opportunities. Yeah, um, yeah. Right. So I think that's something yeah. that I would hope would improve in the next mm. 10 years. Publishing was a, a, a very non-diverse mm. industry, yeah. but it is changing, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is, yeah, actually. It that's is. quite true, yeah. It's, it yeah. is a very... It's kind of white, kind of white bread a bit. Well, it, yeah. was, well, it was, but, but it yeah, was. There, there is, there is quite a lot of change. Out. Yeah, but yeah. I think the biggest problem we're seeing is publishing is, you know, notoriously known for low salaries. So mm. well, what I right. think is a big problem is yeah. getting people into the publishing mm. industry. How do people become professional booksellers, you know? Mm. All of that type of thing, I think, is, is a huge problem. Yeah, that's yeah. all true. I thought we were going to end on an optimistic note earlier, but now we haven't. Oh, no, but I think I'm everything, you know, everything's good. <laughs> but buy books, borrow books from your library. Yeah. It supports writers. Okay, there is a roving mic, I believe. Um, there's a question here in the front row. Okay. Um, to writers, you people are tremendously powerful. Therefore, one does agonise considerably over one's submissions. Um, and if you take this one example of, you know, a book that you would hold parallel to your book. Now, you've got to think, if I say something like Kate Grenville, am I, am I big noting myself? If I refer to something by Arnold Zabel, am I going back in time, therefore I'm no longer relevant? If I say something like Fifty Shades of Grey, am I going to send you running a mile? You know, um, I mean, there's, there's already something about genre. So, so you know, some guidance. What, what I think that's one for you, Alyssa. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, Who God. should you say you like? I mean, yeah. it depends what your book is most like. I mean, obviously, don't compare your book to Fifty Shades of Grey if it's not that kind of. Also, book. that wave has passed, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. Oh, yeah, but yeah. still in the e-books. But um, you know, whatever you feel like your book is most like, absolutely, I don't think it's big noting themselves. Our publishers do it all the time. They walk in and they will always compare a book to a book that sold a lot of copies because straight away everyone's like, oh, hang on, that sold 100,000. I mean, I think if someone came in and it's like, this is a new Kate Grenville, everyone would be like, oh, okay, quick, quick, quick. I mean, it's a good way to get people to read. I think, um, you know, I think when you talk about, you know, what people can do to get published and become authors is, you know, you know, obviously don't too big note yourself, but hold strong to your convictions. Be confident. Say, look, this book is like this and this is why. Um, I think, um, you know, and it doesn't matter who the author is as long as it's, you know, someone that is quite well known. Yeah. And as long as your book is a bit like it Yeah, it's well. a bit like <laughs> it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously don't, you know... Don't compare, it's also know. a bit fraud if you happen to be sort of saying this is a book like, yeah, whatever, to someone who hates that kind of book. It's, mm. it's, you've got to be a bit careful. But you've got to be truthful, I think. You've, you've, got, got, to, you've, got, yeah. you've got to be authentic and, and say, well, you, do. you know, this and is what my really book is really like. And, and it's something weird about, um, I don't want to get all sort of poetic about all this, but the thing is that if, if there's authenticity there, you pick it up in five seconds flat. You really can't. And if it isn't authentic, if it's a copy, you pick that up very quickly too. Mm. And it, and you you know yourself if you if you're writing something and and there's something there's some kind of echo chamber going on. You sort of think, no, this isn't working. Why isn't this working? You can always tell. But I think you really have to have um, a real understanding that this is the story you want to tell, and you've got to be you've. I mean, I know this sounds waffly, but you've really got to be authentic. It's got to be. Yeah. Is yeah. there another question 
Um, it's a bit hard for me to see. Over here, yeah. How important is it that a writer has an agent? <laughs> Coco, what do you uh, think about that? I feel that in Australia you don't need an agent. Um, you don't necessarily need an agent, um, but it depends what you need assistance with. So agents are really fantastic uh, as the middle person between the author and the publisher and they can demystify a contract and demystify an offer, which it can be really useful if you're not quite sure what is going to happen. Uh, but like as we've mentioned, there are so many avenues to get your work in front of a publisher, so I don't really think that... Um, Agents are a huge thing in Australia, as they are, you know, in America and, and the UK. And it can be just as hard to get an agent as it is to get a, exactly. yeah, yeah. And, a publishing and it deal. Is, it's not like it is in America where, if, unless you've got a letterhead accompanying your manuscript, now it's going to look at it. It's not like that here mm. quite. It may be getting that way, but it isn't How, What would you say from the Simon & Schuster point of view? Oh, Does it well, make a difference? To be honest, sometimes agents are really hard because they take <laughs> yeah. money, it becomes more expensive. Mm. I mean, I do agree there is a definite need for agents and looking after bodies of work and different mm. types of things, but we certainly don't discriminate. I mean, if anything, we're like, well, they're unagented. And we're like, oh, okay. You know, I mean... You I know, know when I was working as a publisher, it was, always, yeah, yeah. it was always a huge relief and when a writer didn't have an agent. And kind of a thrill of like, well, you could be... It's a great story mm. to sell that book to the media. We discovered this person off what's horrifically called the slush pile in the mm. office, you know. It's a horrible... You're, right. you're, going to have, yeah. you're going to have yeah. to say what the slush pile is now uh, that you've said it. Also, agents. Yeah. Agents are good too, because they, they might have their fingers and other other pies that publishers do. Sure, they can sell yeah. film and TV. Yeah. But more and more, I mean, our publishers pitch to film festivals. Um, yeah, we have a relationship mm. with Channel 10 and we pitch books to them to make into TV series. So I think more and more, you you know... Yeah, I'd agree with that. Mind. I don't think it's... Yeah. It's, it can be very useful. I've got a really good one. But, um, but it's not... You know, I don't necessarily, yeah. I think we've got another question here in the front row. Hello. Um, <clears throat> a few years back, my mum wrote her memoirs and there was a, basically a suitcase full of writing and uh, she was in her 80s when she wrote it and I decided to put it all together, yep. type it up and publish it just for family and friends yep. who wanted to read it and know about it took quite a while to do it and I just got I, I was basically the editor I suppose but it's her words and since people have been reading it and I've got a lot of feedback that it's a great social history that spans you know all most of last century and that I should get it published I have not got any idea what I would do next okay so what should so so I I don't know whether it is worth it or not it's a really good story. I have no idea what I'd do. Well, I, th I think... Advice, please. Both Alyssa and Coco are happy to have a yeah. quick chat to people afterwards. Yeah. So maybe As come say, and talk to, to them. What I always say is I'm, you know, people have helped me throughout my career and I'm more than happy to try and help people. I can give you my business card or if you've got a book, I can take it and I can put it on the desk of someone who works in the publishing department in our office. I can't promise anything after that um, because... 
you know, it really it's not my call. But if they think there's something in it, and I'm sure Coco, I mean, I don't mm. know, I don't want to <laughs> nominate you if you don't want to do it, but, you know, that is the beauty of these things is that mm. more than happy to do that. Outside of this kind of opportunity, how do you get your book in front of a publisher? It's very, very hard. You've either got to send it to the publisher and then it becomes what's called an unsolicited manuscript or an unsolicited book and then it will go to what's called the horrible term that's the slush pile, which is a pile of manuscripts where everyone sends them in. Depending on the publishing house is depending on who goes through them. A lot of publishers don't accept unsolicited manuscripts anymore. But um, go to writers' festivals, get in contact with you know writing centres, mm. the Australian Society of Authors, um, all of those types of organisations that are out there to help facilitate the process. But, yeah, I'm more than happy at the end. If you have anything, come and tell me and I'll try and help Society you out. Society of Authors this is possibly a good one. Just yeah, the ASA. Yeah. This, this gentleman had published the book himself. Uh, yeah. Is, now, is that, a, is that a disadvantage when you're no, approaching... No, no, well, Alyssa, is that a disadvantage when you're approaching a publisher if you've already so. published the book or Coco? Um, it, uh, it can, if, you know... Uh, it has already reached its immediate readership. That does take away a little bit of the potential of the book. Uh, but if you're able to show comparable titles that have done well, we can always find more readers. And it sounds like an amazing story, so there's always readers out there. Yeah. But I guess the risk is, if it has already been published, yeah. those readers might have already got a copy. Yeah. yeah. Is there another question to your right? over here? Yeah. Two questions, actually. But uh, the first one is, um, you said before that the publishing industry doesn't have enough publishers. Wouldn't it be better if there were like uh, experienced authors who became publishers so they know what is being published or what they're publishing when the authors and their work... Um, I'm not so, quite so, sure. So, what? was your question, would it be better if publishers were well, authors yeah, like, first? You know, that Is that... Has the, oh. uh, no, I meant the experienced authors, if they were offering to become publishers, that way they would, because of the experience of what they've been like writing, would they be able to understand what uh, the newer authors... Are writing. There are there are some publishers who are also authors, but but they're very different skills too. I, yeah, d- I don't know what you right. think, Coco. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, as an editor, I definitely don't ever want to write, and I think sometimes publishers are the same. They have a different set of skills than an author would. Um, but if you mean uh, like a, a publisher who has the experience of going through editing as an author would, um, they've shepherded so many authors through that process so they're very well versed in it and uh, you know aside from the author the editor and the publisher are the two people who know the story as intimately as the author so they're kind of an extra author in a way they experience it in the same a similar way I'd say um, yeah just trying to remember it the, uh, yeah. self-publishing the um, personally, I would like to get some insight on how to self-publish. But basically, how do you 
self-publish, and who do you go to for professional help to publish? It's actually very difficult, um, yeah. and there there are a lot of sharks mm. in yeah. in this yeah. area. Yeah. So yeah. I, my advice would be go to the ASA, the yep. Australian Society of Authors. Juliet Rogers, who runs yep. the ASA, is um, she used to be managing director of Random House. Um, I've had lots of conversations with her and that is where I'd start. There are a lot of different avenues in self-publishing um, but there are also a lot of people out there who will rip you off yeah. and you need to protect yourself, you need to protect your work in terms of copyright and, um, you know, yes, you can self-publish on Amazon as an e-book but if you are interested in that, my first, my advice would be to start with the ASA because in they fact, would have I lots think of they've resources. Got, they've got document, They've actually got a booklet, I think, about how well, they, to sell. They also, ha- they also have a service where they'll assess a contract yeah. for you for a fee. And if you're signing a contract of any kind, you should always get it checked by somebody. <laughs> and particularly if that contract is asking you to pay money to the person who's going to publish your book. You One want to get independent advice on that contract before you sign it. And there are some real rip-off merchants out there. Yeah. Yep. We've also got well, one of our festival authors, one of our guest authors here, who is a self-published author. So I think he's got some um, insights to share. Sure. Just to answer that question really quickly and maybe help some people here, I've been published with traditional publishers as well, Simon and & Schuster and Alan and & Unwin. And, um, but I'm also self-published with the biggest publisher in the world who never gets a mention in these forums because we all hate them, which is Amazon. Amazon. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm I sorry to, I'm sorry to bring them. them. We'd love to hate them. <laughs> yeah, we'd love to hate them. I'm sorry to bring them up. But if you do want to self-publish, the easiest way, if you can operate a Word document, is you can self-publish through Amazon. Mm. And that means you can... And you, then you can... Amazon also do print-on-demand. So you can get your mother's book printed... Um, Professionally, relatively professionally yeah. through that. I'm not trying to publicise Amazon. I am just saying there is that option there. And I know many authors now, because I'm in that other area, who actually sell quite a lot. Oh, there are. Uh, and I'm surprised how many I sell. It's comparable with some of my traditionally published books, which I never thought would happen. Yeah, I, I didn't think that was true. But I guess there are, there are two. I mean, there's there's self-publishing where you're publishing essentially for family and friends or a local mm. network, where where it's it can be quite an amateur thing that you're doing, and you really just want to do it for a reasonable amount of money so that you can share that story with your community. And then there are people who self-publish as an apps, as a business, and there are some people who are extremely successful at self-publishing their work. Um, but if you're going to do that, you have to think of it as a business, and you have to do it properly. Yeah. You, know, you have to invest money in doing it properly. But you can, no, no, you can do it properly. Yeah. But what I mean by doing it properly is you should get your work edited professionally, you should get your cover designed by a professional designer. If, you go, if you're going to do it as a business, that's what you should be doing. Mm. And I there. think one of the problems with self-publishing is you can absolutely publish on Amazon through electronically or physically and print on demand but that doesn't necessarily mean that your book will be elsewhere so then it comes down to a question about distribution Mm -hmm. and distribution to whether it be your local store or Dimmick stores or independent stores or or whatnot so yeah 
Mm. Yeah, the, the, the other problem, sorry, I don't want to go on too long about this, but the problem with that is, of course, that when we talk about the publishing industry, when the publishing industry talks about the publishing industry and, and it says X is the bestseller, it's only talking about the books published by reputable publishers. It's not talking about the no. millions of books, that e-books mainly, that are well, published Amazon by Amazon. Well, Amazon won't sell their sales data. So yeah, no, they, won't get, they won't share it with anybody. I would be more than happy to talk about and compare books that Amazon have sold through self-publishing if they were to release their yeah, sales figure. Yeah, I know. They're, they're a big, ugly bastard yeah. and they're not yeah. very nice. But, <laughs> but they, are, they are selling huge numbers of books. Absolutely. And there is an opportunity there for writers to become is. writers yeah. and yeah. make money from writing without going through the traditional publishers who are the most wonderful people in the world. Uh, and I'd quickly add, just to, to maybe thank everyone on stage, that you know how when you watch a movie and you see at the end all the credits, you see the director and the editor and all that? I think every book should have on the inside page the name of the editor and the name of the, the it's woman. It's inevitably now, a woman who's the publisher because they deserve the credit. And you never hear about that. You never hear who the editor is of Tim Winton's book. No, oh, you often, occasionally, I mean, if, you, not, not if, it, if it was an okay experience, you, get, uh, you can get you that get in the acknowledgement. Yeah, or at the end of Are the book. Yeah. I meant to say that's Stephen Herrick, by the way, and he's performing tonight if you want to come to the Slam. Do we have any more questions? We've probably got time for one. Last one, I think. Oh, thank you for a lovely panel. Um, I'm thinking about book covers and I'm thinking about book titles, and I wonder if you have examples of um, both that happen differently in different countries and, and could you explain to the uninitiated how those decisions are made, that a book could be written here, but then when it's for sale in the States, it's got another name. And I, I have to share one, actually, from my time as a publisher. I published a book that was... Um, it was funny stories about animals, fictionalised stories about animals, anthropomorphising them, but based on the real animal behaviour. It was a wicked book. And in Australia, it was um, called Zombie Tits and Astronaut Fish, <laughs> which was a title I came up with as the publisher. When I sold the rights to the US, they, they would not have the little innuendo joke about the tits on the front cover in America. So the American edition was zombie birds and astronaut fish. It's not nearly oh, as good. No. Uh, <laughs> look, yeah. we try more and more to keep consistency across all international mm. markets. I think in this day and age with social media... You can't, it's very hard to have different covers in different markets, especially if a book goes crazy in the US and in Australia you have a different cover and a different title or vice versa. So we a lot more are aligning to have global covers, global mm. titles because, yeah, I'm in the internet, you know, that's mm. why. Yeah, that makes mm. sense. Yeah. We've been slightly different. We've had uh, the Nowhere Child sell rights in a number of territories, and it's been so interesting to see what covers they come back with. So it gives us a sense of where France is pitching the book in their market or yeah. America. Mm. So like our cover was probably a bit more intelligent crime was what we were going for. And then uh, I can't remember which territory, but it turns a bit more schlocky gruesome crime and it's so interesting to see how it's pitched in different territories. Mm. Sorry, I should say I was talking to English language, not 
yes. and all these yeah. different territories. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we are out of time, so yeah. we will have to stop. Um, Jacqueline will be signing copies of her biography of Beatrice Davis outside. Um, and Coco and Alyssa have both said, as you know, that they're happy to talk to people. And I'm also happy to talk to anybody who's interested in writing New South Wales and what we do. There are some copies of our magazine and our program on the signing table, which anybody is welcome to take. And one of our board members, Loretta Ray, is also here, and I'm sure she would also be happy to tell people about us. Thank you very much to our panellists. Yes, thank you. Can I just quickly announce what's happening next?